Welcome. This is the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists where we talk about what it means to be one. My name's Sophia Kayafis. I'm Marshall Jones. And we're here with our producer, Tun Miai. We're three artists that live and work in New York City. And this is being recorded on the fly in between our many jobs and creative endeavors. We use this podcast to ground us in a space where there are so many ways t- to lose yourself. So join us. We have real conversations with artists we admire on the art grind. Mr. Perlstein, have you ever been on a podcast before? What's that? That's what we are. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do. Oh my God. I can't believe we got to interview Philip Perlstein. I mean, he is a treasure. This interview is a treasure. Okay. This man has lived through some pretty significant moments in history, and he's influenced the art world during, like, the height of abstract expressionism, even pop art, the 50s and 60s, in New York. I mean, a New York that seemed a little smaller than it is now. But he knew and, like, hung out with Andy Warhol, Chuck Close, Alice Neal, Willem de Kooning, and Philip Guston, just to name a few. And now he's 96 years old. He still lives in New York. He survived World War II and two strokes, and he still paints every single day for the live model. Talk about dedication. So he's got a lot of stories to tell. And even though he's a busy man, he was generous enough to talk to us about his life right before the pandemic hit. So this interview, in some ways, it might even be historical that we have him on air, uninterrupted, for like an hour and 45 minutes, documenting his life. Um... I would just remind our audience, be patient, because Philip has a way of meandering through the stories of his life, but it it all comes together in the end. The end's the best part, and it's so interesting. And in some ways, his accounts of the art movements can give us all some insight on how we are connected to the larger story of art history as contemporary painters. Um, So it's very humbling. Uh, If you don't know who Philip Perlstein is, I would encourage you to look his work up right now. I'm sure you've seen it, but have have a look. It's a philipperlstein.com. All right, I'm, I'm going to shut up now. Sit back and enjoy. Uh, Philip is just going to jump right in. Well, I came to New York in 1949. I'd been in the Army during World War II. Like every other young kid, I got drafted on graduation from high school at the age of 18. But... I had won a scholarship in my senior year uh, for the first year of college at Carnegie, what's now Carnegie Mellon. So I had my first year of college. I got a deferment for that first year Mm -hmm. from the Army. As soon as school year ended, I went into the Army. Uh, So I was 19, or just about to be 19, I guess and put into basic training in the, the lowest branch of the infantry <laughs> <laughs> called Infantry Casualty Replacement Training. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. And we were told. It's very, you know, like, catch-22 sound. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to come home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Infantry <laughs> replacement. And we, we, when we, so we, uh, I went through that, and that was based on uh, World War One, French-style trench warfare. Mm. Hand to, a lot of hand-to-hand combat. How to kill the guy next to you with a bayonet. Mm. 
at the end of the rifle, that sort of thing. It was brutal. Wow. So all of us, all these kids, you know, went from ordinary, flabby young men to becoming supermen. It was fantastic. Hmm. What the training did, four hmm. months. Well, at the end of the training, we were on a railroad platform to go off, and about 12 names were called out. And we were told to wait for the next train. So those, all the guys we had trained with, about 400 or so, went off, found out later, and the, <clears throat> most of them didn't survive. Oh. But the 12 of us on the platform trying to figure out what we had in common that we were called out. Turned out we had had at least one year of college and knew how to type. Oh my God. Is that right? Isn't that amazing? Wow. Very few people had gone to college then. Wow. And uh, we were sent to a new training camp. Most of them went into the office, office work. And I was, because of, I had that Life magazine, <laughs> was sent into this unit where they did, uh, were doing uh, charts, di uh, diagrams yeah. for training purposes of infantry weapons. And they were older men, six or seven of them, uh, who'd been commercial artists. And they quickly filled me in on the perspective, all the things I had learned. Oh, college, they were teaching you art concepts. Hmm. Different typefaces, uh, the use of uh, drafting instruments, page layout, all that. Hmm. Enough that I was able to have a career later on built on that experience, which lasted about I think four or five months, I forget, about five months, let's say. And then we were put back, suddenly put back, the, the, young, the younger ones, the older ones were sent home. Their time was up. They'd been in the Army, whatever it was, uh, three years or something. Uh, the younger ones were put back in infantry training in Florida, and this time it was in terms of jungle warfare and, and desert warfare. So it was altogether different, except it was with live ammunition and how to attack a village. Hmm. <laughs> it was done with live ammunition. Just for training purposes, live ammunition. Incredible. And then the, the next, uh, then we were sent to Italy, Italy, as infantry casualty replacements. You got on the boat on one side. You were, as, as you walked, you walked up a ladder. There's a little opening on the uh, onto the deck. On one side of the opening was a uh, a nun who handed you. A, a miniature copy of the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, 
On the other side was a nurse who handed you a sleeping bag, a cotton bag. Oh, my God. Supposedly, you were going to fill it with straw, and that was going to be your mattress. Mm. In reality, it was to send you home in. <laughs> wow. And that's, there was no other reading material. Mm. Uh, so it took 15 days from whatever the port we left from. I I heard you you tell an interesting story about uh, your training and and blindness. How you there was a uh, an explosion that that made oh, you think that, you were that blind. That happened in Italy. That was in Italy. Italy. Well, we got there. Uh, we all everybody. There were five hundred of us from the infantry on on the boat. We all had corporal stripes, and nobody could quite figure it out. And uh, that was the first day of discussion. <laughs> then we forgot about it. Uh, the boat landed in Naples, and the next day uh, we were trucked to uh, a town beyond Naples. That's where the 5th Army headquarters was. And we were to be the casualty replacements of the big battle of Monte Cassino, but which was raging until we got there. Hmm. It ended right as like we two there. weeks before we got there. <laughs> but the place was just covered with the temporary markers for guys who had been killed graves, temporary graves. Several different nationalities. You know, there were, you know, French, English, American, uh, German, uh, Turkish, I remember, uh, Algerian, all, all kinds of troops from different countries. All, all just buried wherever they had been killed. We spent the next four months, four or five months there, hmm. taking training every day, supposedly recreating little actual skirmishes that had taken place. It had lasted a long time. Um, Monte Casino is one of those places that goes straight up and straight down. You know, there's no reason for a mountain to be there. <laughs> but it's a picture book mountain and there had been this uh, monastery on top which the Germans had fortified and so the battle was all about capturing the uh, monastery but the, by the time we got there the monastery was just rubble we were down at the base and uh, but there's a little river right there but one night, there was a problem, a night problem, and we were lined up on either side of this little river. It was pitch black, and, uh, you know, we wore still helmets, and uh, suddenly 
these uh, phosphorescent bombs went off along both sides of this little river. And suddenly, right at my feet, one explodes, and mm. I suddenly couldn't see. Mm. So there are a lot of casualties in, the, in these training projects. Uh, so there was always a medical unit somewhere in the back. Uh, so I sat down on the side of on the riverbank and waited for somebody, to, a medic, to come along and get me. And I'm sitting there saying, well, okay, so now I'm blind, but at least I'll go home. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy finally comes along and he leads me back to the medical tent, you know, about a mile behind or more. And I wait my turn. It was a long line of people who had been hurt. And uh, finally, I get into the tent and an orderly takes off my glasses and I could see. <laughs> <laughs> my glasses had been coated with mud. <laughs> and, and I just realized then, you know, how precious eyesight is. We just don't appreciate it. Well, it's funny because I was telling uh, Sophia, as, as we were getting ready to interview you, talking about it, and I feel like your your whole career uh, in painting honors the gift of sight. Yeah, you know? like, well, now that's now as an adult at the age uh, of 40, 41 or two, I dedicated myself to realism mm -hmm. from abstract expressionism, uh, which was a revolutionary at that moment, revolutionary. Because I had a nice career going as an abstract expressionist. Right. I, I was a, a fairly well-known, one of the younger artists on the scene. And, what, uh, what did your friends, like I know you... Everybody was shocked. They were shocked, right? Yeah. Shocked. By then I was uh, also in a gallery. And the uh, Alan Franken Gallery. And he came... And I showed him these new paintings, which were quite, they're still shocking. Hmm. <laughs> uh, but but uh, several of them were of not only news, but they were mixed male and female mm -hmm. and mixed race, African-American, one was Japanese. Uh, they were all students at the New York Studio School. Oh, at the studio school. Yeah, which had been just started by a friend of mine, uh, Mercedes Matter, who had been teaching oh, figure yeah. drawing I know. Yes. at Pratt. Oh, she taught at Pratt as well. Okay. She taught at Pratt. The first year I was there, at, at uh, lunch one day, the faculty had a separate dining room. She said, anybody interested in drawing some figure, come to my place Sunday evening. So that included people like Philip Gustin, George McNeil, and uh, wow. a few others who were quite well known. Oh, that's so great. Charles Kajori and uh, 
of the teaching at Pratt. And, uh, I can't remember. I had Lois Dodd hmm. and uh, Alex Katz. Oh, really? Wow. Oh, my God. Uh, Mary Frank. We all showed up at Mercedes Matters place the, uh, the following Sunday evening. <laughs> and it's not that she had a big place, but this took place in her living room. Her husband was Herbert Matter, mm. who was the very well-known, even then very well-known photographer. They, they had this little house on McDougall Alley, which was right behind what was then the Whitney Museum which had moved out, so it was an empty building. So the first year or so, we met every Sunday evening. Uh, other people joined. I lived uptown. I had a little, I had a Volkswagen station wagon, one of the buses. Yep, oh yeah. And on my way, I would pick people up. And they kept growing. Would you pick up Alice Neal as well, or am I wrong? Am no, I that misremembering? Later. That's later. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Alice Neal later. <laughs> uh, it was very funny. It was quite a few years later. Hilton Kramer, the critic, I think it's when he became editor of New York Times or something. And he wrote a review of a show. Alice Neal and I had shows at the same time, two different galleries. He gave her a very, he didn't like her work. Hmm. That's a, <laughs> he, that happened he, a lot. He gave her a rough review. And he gave me a nice review in the same issue. Okay. And uh, a friend of hers from Denmark, whose whole family she had painted, wrote a letter to Hilton Kramer in her defense. A long letter. <laughs> and at the end of it, and he said, everybody knows that Hilton Kramer, Philip Erlstein, you know, were very close buddies implying homosexual relationship. And uh, Hilton Kramer wrote a one-line response to this letter, which took up a whole page in the Sunday Times. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at the end of Lewis's letter, he said, it wasn't he that I had shared quarters with, but Andy Warhol. Oh, really? Which is true. Hmm. Andy and I came to New York together and lived together for the better part of a year. But just we were just good friends, you know? You, you met Andy at uh, Carnegie. Well, when the war ended... I went back to college on the GI Bill beginning of the sophomore year, along with one other kid, young man, the right age. The rest of us were veterans, the rest of the class, about mm. 30. Uh, and Andy, this is a story I've told many times, Andy came over to me and said, how does it feel to be famous? <laughs> Referring to that article in Life magazine. The article, yeah. 
And my reply was, well, you know, I seem to have two different memories of what I, my response was. One that it only lasted like three weeks and the other that it only lasted a few days, something like that, which he later took off on, expanded it to 15. To 15 minutes is famous, <laughs> which you coined. And, I think and, I said it only lasted two weeks, something like that. <laughs> it's great. Well, the war came along. But, but uh, then we became very good friends. And he had two young ladies who sort of were in, in attendance on him. One had actually nursed him through high school because Andy was dyslexic, the, what would now be called dyslexic. He mm -hmm. never read. And uh, she got him through all the courses in history and English and all that in high school. And now she was also in the same class at art school uh, at Carnegie always beside him, and uh, she had a girlfriend who was a year behind, but they were always together in the free time. And uh, I eventually married her. She became my wife. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, but the, we became a, what do you say, a quadruple, four of us. We went to all the foreign movies right. and concerts <laughs> hmm. together for the next three years. Wow. I got very close to Andy. You could recognize he was quite talented. He did very eccentric drawings, you know. Hmm. But they were charming. They made people smile. And uh, his father had died when he was when Andy was quite young. But he had two older brothers who knew my father. They were in the um, wholesale food market in Pittsburgh, taking a, a regular route of customers scattered around the city. Hmm. Uh, and they knew each other. So when uh, we had a third friend, whose name was George Clobber, he was very, he was a little older, very sophisticated, after he got out of the army in France, he decided to go to Harvard hmm. <laughs> on the Giorgio. So he picked up the Harvard accent. Uh. He was from Brooklyn. He introduced us, or me, to Proust and all that kind of Okay. Uh, Highbrow literature. He knew all about you know, Gustav Mahler, symphonies, and so on. We went to, he joined us for the concerts, mostly. But we also became very close friends. At the end of the first year, the sophomore year, he decided to return to uh, New York. He was from Brooklyn. Mm. And he had been away for like six years from his family. So he decided he owed it to his mother, who was quite elderly and so forth. And he had a couple sisters to spend time at home. So he went to Pratt. He switched to Pratt where he had had his first year before being drafted. 
at Pratt, he was so brilliant that his design teacher hired him to be a personal assistant. Hmm. The design teacher was a well-known art director. His name was Will Burton. And he was editor of Esquire magazine, which then, believe it or not, was the leading magazine for contemporary art. Oh, really? Huh. Unbelievable. Hmm. And through the, because of Will Burton. Hmm. He was running covers with all these con- young contemporary artists on the reproductions of their paintings. And uh, He was also president of the uh, New York, what do you call it, art art editors of magazines, art editors club. Okay. They had a club. And so he had the list, our friend George had all the names of all the secretaries of all these guys, art directors. (laughs) And uh, George was on very outgoing person, was on very friendly terms with all these secretaries. So when we were about to graduate at Carnegie Tech at the end of our four years of college, George telephoned me from New York and said, you know, there's nothing in Pittsburgh for you, for a future. Come to New York and bring Andy with you. I'll give you those, the list of secretaries. <laughs> and you, you use my name to get appointments to show your portfolios. Hmm. So Andy had mostly the uh, solutions to a lot of the problems. The course we had been in at Carnegie essentially was illustration okay. as, as the major. Mm-hmm. So Andy had all these very, very charming drawings or little paintings. Uh, solutions to various problems of illustrations. So he was perfect for illustration. I was more ambitious. I wanted to be an art director. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) My portfolio was based on a study of the United States Constitution. Okay. This was just the beginning of the McCarthy era. Finding communist, yeah. So Andy goes see these art directors on a list. Oh, George also found us a place to live. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And uh, and looked after us, got us all set up. So Andy and I, why there was a meeting, my between Andy's brothers my father and, and me, they interviewed me about, they wouldn't let Andy go to New York by himself because he was still so young, unless he would live with me, which was the last thing I had been looking forward to. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, Anyway, so 
Andy and I took a bus to New York. And we lived together the first 10 months. Oh, wow. In New York, till we got evicted from the place we were living in. Because the woman said, oh, that's another whole story. She was a modern dancer. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was living in the back part of the studio. She said she hadn't been paying the rent to her landlord. Well, years later, I found out she owned the whole building we were in. What? <laughs> she just didn't like us. <laughs> but she's the one. She was also beginning to practice uh, from switching from dance to using, to being a therapist. Uh, amateur psychologist. So it, was it very exciting for you and to she's come? She's the one who worked on Andy and turned him into Andy Warhol. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I, yeah. Did and she? I, I married Dorothy at the end of that year when she graduated Carnegie. Okay. And Andy flew with me to Pittsburgh to be the best man at the wedding. Oh, is that right? But, the, but we didn't have that kind of wedding. Hmm. We were married in a rabbi's study. Okay. And he was a guest at the wedding. Hmm. And uh, my mother-in-law always referred to Andy as the Meshugana. <laughs> Before anybody else thought he was a little bit odd. <laughs> Quite a bit odd. Were you, were you competitive with Andy? Or? I loved Andy. Yeah. I thought he was very talented. He was quite different. He, he assumed a whole other personality later. Totally mm. made up. Mm. It's not what he was like as a very young kid. Mm. And, uh, but we stayed in touch for a long time. Mm. And uh, uh, anyway, during that year, Andy, because of that list of names, Andy got jobs at the end of the first week. Hmm. And it just never let up. And he would stay awake all night working. Wow. And I had very little luck. I had this portfolio essentially based on the United, <laughs> study of the United States Constitution, the origins, and then how some things would work and so forth. Some of my illustrations for that now look like suggestions for staging Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> You're ahead of your time. But the, the, Andy would get jobs. The art director, the same art director would look at my work and say, what are you, a communist? (laughs) (laughs) And throw me out. Close the portfolio and open the dwarf immediately. Hmm. That went on for a couple of months until I got this job with uh, Mr. Sittner. Okay. As an assistant doing uh, graphic design. For Sweets Magazine. Yeah. Building... The I worked mostly on American standards, sanitary. Oh, really? The to- toilets, right? For the next eight, eight years. <laughs> I've stared at the American standard in front right. of me many times. But Mr. Sutner was very important 
in my life, who was really one of the leading designers at the time, though I didn't realize it. And I learned a lot from him. The first job was something that was done off the top of his head. He was, he was famous uh, from the Bauhaus and as a designer. And all these famous people kept dropping in whenever they visited New York uh, and Black Mountain College. Joseph Albers one day. And, oh, wow. Uh, Buckminster Fuller a couple days later. And uh, Sutner was looking for something to do to send out as a season's greetings for Sweets catalogs. Oh, which sure. It's a huge publication, 15 volumes. Wow. Of all these pamphlets together. And uh, they had a lot of customers <laughs> and a lot of money to spend. So Sutton was had been trying to come up with something, and he some, something went off in his mind. He and Buckminster Fuller, that same visit, uh, went into the back room of Sutton's office and came out about an hour and a half later and dumped all these tracing paper sketches on my table. I was equipped to do work as a draftsman and all that. So he had hired me at a very low wage, I must say. <laughs> and uh, he uh, dumped this, all these tracing paper sketches on my table, he and Buckminster, for Buckminster's ideas of transportation and communication for the next 50 years. This was November 1949. So this was the greetings for 1950. Okay. All I had to make was stylized drawings from his sketches. He brought in the sheaves of his, you know, really on beautiful vellum of his projects, you know, the, the Dymaxium automobile had three wheels and it's shaped like a, a ladybug. <laughs> Two wheels in front and one behind. Another automobile that had, you could attach wings to and it became an airplane. Uh. Another one that suddenly became a submarine. You could go underwater with it. And so it you were drawing these out of ideas your... Ideas like that, you know. Huh, out of imagination, essentially. Yeah, but I recognized the style because... When I was in Italy, after the fighting ended, I became a sign painter for the roads that were bombed out. And I was with this unit, engineer unit, that were in charge of German prisoners of war, rebuilding the road between Florence and Rome. Hmm. It was, hmm. you know, just rubble. Hmm. So they needed lots of road signs. And you were painting the, the signage on the side of the road then? What? You were just painting the signage on the well, side of the road? The, the, our, we were moved up to near Pisa. Okay. And the German prisoners of war were in this, in pup tents, right outside of Pisa. And I, I had a couple of guys who, who were real terrific lettering men, Germans. One of who, the one who did the actual final lettering on most of the sign wasn't me. It had been the head design, what he called the calligrapher, the head 
calligrapher for the German movie studio called Ufa, mm. UFA. I designed the signs and he painted it. Okay. He did all the, the, the lettering, you know, the titles and all the translations into different languages are all lettered by hand, by hmm. him and his staff. So he taught me calligraphy hmm. <laughs> and refined my sense of design. I, I developed as a mature painter in the abstract expressionist era, hmm. uh, the, the early 1950s. I was doing graphic design during the daytime. Mm. At night, I spent a couple hours every night doing abstract expressionist paintings. Okay. Uh, the abstract expressionist paintings were painted very, very heavy paint and big bristle brushes. And then at a certain point, Around, I had a Fulbright to Italy, and uh, it was 1957. And when I came back, it was as if we'd been living in the Soviet Union. The abstract expressionism as a movement, way of painting as a movement, had ended. It oh. had abruptly been thrown out of all the galleries. No gallery was showing it. When we left uh, in the fall of the year before, whatever it was, 1958, that's all you saw, all the galleries. Mm. Abstract expression. It came back, it was gone. I, I wasn't here when it happened. I don't know what happened. Really? Uh, but it was amazing. I, I had a Fulbright grant as a student, and one of the requirements was he took a figure drawing class. Mm. <laughs> so along with whatever else I did that year as an artist, I had a bunch of figure drawings. Okay. So I got interested in that. And then I began that year while I was in on the Fulbright, uh, I was hired to teach two-dimensional design uh, at Pratt Institute in the, in the first year, the foundation year. And uh, so I, I was still on a leave of absence from Life magazine. Uh, and I was given a course to fill out my schedule because I was still on leave uh, from Time, Inc. And my wife and I had had a baby in the meantime. He had spent his first year in Rome. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So we, uh, we needed a bigger, uh, an income. So they filled out my schedule with art history, survey courses, history of art workshop. Okay. Without specifying what it meant. Oh. So I took it as a... I had studied art history and I had a degree in art history, but I never thought of I would go into teaching it. Uh, 
That was in 1950. It was now 1959. But I developed a course on style, the history of styles, starting with Egyptian, two-dimensional, and then working to Renaissance, three-dimensional, hmm. and then progressing to uh, a study of light, including Rembrandt and uh, space, starting with Chinese medieval painting. And uh, then I jumped to Mondrian. Hmm. <laughs> Mondrian and then Cubism. It was a year-long course. The last problem was tearing everything up and doing a collage like Larry Rivers. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, that's great. So that was my history of art. <laughs> it's, it's all in there. <laughs> I ended up combining all of those courses together. Wow. I used the figure drawing course. I just used the figure to teach composition, like mm. graphic design, using the figure as a main element in, uh, in designing a page, mm. the main shape. Well, that's you, what... Referring to Matisse and... Mondrian. It was a combination of Mondrian and Matisse. That's something that Marshall and I were kind of talking about when we were looking at your paintings. We were saying mm -hmm. how, how well designed they feel. Well, I decided that that was a really interesting problem. And I started working that way. Hmm. And as I said, abstract expressionism was dead. I don't know what happened. What, what replaced but, but it? But a bunch of us, uh, my friends, were already working in different directions. Like Al Held was doing a early minimalist painting using his initials as the basis of compositions. Hmm. And uh, other people were doing color field, you know, early color field painting. So abstract expressionism dead, but... The, Younger artists who'd been highly influenced that way were working already, some of them working in other directions. Hmm. Uh, red grooms suddenly appeared on the scene. Everything changed. Would, would de Kooning have had something no, to do with that? No, de Kooning continued on his own way. Hmm. But de Kooning, we, I'd been friendly with de Kooning. Hmm. And he had a secret career doing airbrush work for advertising. Really? <laughs> he did, he did uh, airplanes. I forget, one of the big airlines. And uh, I think it was Parker Fountain Pen ads. Oh, wow. With airbrush. Can you believe it? Huh. While he was uh, painting abstract expression, he was the leading force, actually. For many of us, he was a hero for most of us. And uh, he once took me on a walk <laughs> to, to, we were on, the gallery was on 10th Street that I was affiliated with, the Tanager Gallery. This is while I was working in graphic design. And he, uh, When I had my first one-man show, uh, 
he came in and criticized the work. Oh, did he? And one of the things he criticized was the, was the brush strokes. And he took me to a, a, a sign painter's brush store. Okay. It was on 3rd Avenue, right around the corner uh, from 10th Avenue, maybe a couple blocks further, near Cooper Union. And he, uh, the store was filled with all these brushes that did different things. And he showed me which brushes he used and so forth. Really? And recommended a couple for me. <laughs> it, it was a wonderful experience. And you used the bristle brush. What? You always use bristles, well, right? I started using it after that visit. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a whole series of them. Hmm. But there was, there was an interesting lesson using brushes of different sizes and uh, hmm. the different things, sable and bristle brush and horsehair brushes. He used horsehair brushes. Hmm. De Kooning did. Wow. Sometimes. That's how he, his early paintings, the big, you can see the mark in the painting. Hmm. <laughs> the curves. The brush does it. You give it a jerk and it goes around. <laughs> I mean, the the bristles are about, you know, eight or nine inches long. Wow. It was very interesting. But, uh, I mean, the lesson that, that the brush can do a lot of work. How, do, how does the figure work in there for you then? Well, that's it. When I was given this, I have been drawing it. Uh, I started in those classes at in Rome, when I had the Fulbright, but when I was given a course in figure drawing to teach at Pratt, all I could think of was using the figure as a main element in a uh, rectangular composition. Hmm. And for that, Mondrian was your god. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, the page layout. Hmm. And... Uh, whether Mondrian knew it or not, or was ever given credit for it or not. I read everything he wrote. Really? And it's all about the d division of the rectangle. Wow. Which he saw as forces. He didn't see the lines. He wasn't concerned with the lines at all. They resulted from these patches of color pressing against each other. And what he saw were these forces in outer space that his paintings represented, hmm. each of those areas. So I applied that to my teaching hmm. and uh, combined it with Matisse, that one phase of Matisse anyway. Hmm. I, wasn't, I wasn't yet aware of the collages. Right, right. They, they weren't shown yet or published. So what does what does painting mean to you? Uh, you've been working with a figure for probably 70 years? Well, the one problem I came up with at Pratt to save my life. <laughs> <laughs> Your livelihood. <laughs> I, the, at the end of the... Some of the students were really quite adept. Hmm and uh, wonderfully talented. 
And uh, they came up with terrific solutions. And I said, boy, this is interesting, much, uh, a lot more interesting than abstract expressionist. And so I began working that way. It was more interesting to you than abstract And then I spent the next year, one year, I taught at Pratt two years. And on the third year, by the third year, I had had my first one-man show at the Frumpkin Gallery of the figure, figures. Of figure paintings. And the Bernie Chait, who was acting head of the art department, at Yale, saw the show. I happened to be in the gallery, and he invited me to come and teach hmm. one day a week at Yale the following year. So the third year I was at Pratt, I was teaching uh, figure drawing, going to Mercedes classes. Mm-hmm teaching whatever I picked up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I always did the wrong thing. For Mercedes based her drawing ideas on Giacometti and okay. used the figure in a manner that, you know, grew out of Cezanne. And, but it's all about the space relationships, hmm. not the figure itself. But I closed my outlines. So she, she never really open. accepted me as an equal. Oh, really? Because I closed my outlines. Ah, that's... Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so Mer- Mercedes was teaching at Pratt. And she wrote an article, uh, which she presented at the College Art Association that year. And it got republished in one of the art magazines on what an art ideal art school should be, hmm. which was the opposite of Pratt. Okay. <laughs> and her stu- her students from her class, all of them dropped out oh of Pratt of Pratt, and started their own school. And. Uh, one of them, a couple of them, I guess, must have had enough money. They uh, rented a loft downtown. Was that on, on the... East Broadway? On Broadway. Um, okay, on Broadway. Or East Broadway. I forget which. What was the name of the school they started? What? What was the name of the school that they started? Well, it's what became the New York Studio School. <laughs> the New York Studio, which was in the place that Hans Hoffman had. Isn't that, isn't that right? No. They found an empty space. Okay. Uh, but after a couple of years, and our drawing group moved from Mercedes space, her living room, to this space on Sunday nights. Oh, okay. That seems like such a, a remarkable room full of so much talent. Would uh, w- would you guys like critique each other's work, or would no, you no. look at anything? You weren't allowed to talk. Oh, really? There was oh, that's no a good talking, rule. and you weren't supposed to look at everybody, anybody else's work either. 
Ah. <laughs> but obviously, Mercedes looked at my work <laughs> and decided I was doing the wrong thing. <laughs> but one of the girls in this class died within a couple of years and left the money for them to buy the empty Whitney Museum building. Oh. Which was, you know, on McDougal Alley. The back was McDougal Alley and the front was 8th Street. And they moved there, and that became the, I think they called it the 8th Street, what is it called? It's on 8th Street New, now, that school. What is it called? New York? New York Studio School. Studio. The Studio School, yeah. For a while it was called the 8th Street. Okay. It, they didn't give it the name of the young lady who left the money. Hmm. But she had, there's a plaque to her in that staircase. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and, and is that where you sort of fell in love with rendering the figure in those? Yeah, in it was that dedicated room and... to just working from the figure day and night hmm. in Mercedes style. Hmm. These kids then hired Mercedes to be the director of the school. Okay. She was there. She was their employee. Hmm. And then... And, and it's a strange story. Wow, yeah. It's such a great time that you are coming yeah. up with all that. Like, so many things happening. Yeah, so many. It's really powerful. Like, Well, it became very important in my life, but not for what they taught. When you paint, it's as if you're you're as... I think there's a lot of love that goes into your paintings. You'll paint the textiles and the floor similar as you paint the figure. Well, a lot of, yeah. But I have to give Mercedes a credit, a great deal of credit for the manner in which the models, when we first met in her uh, living room, she hired art students as models. Mm. And most of them had been working hard all day, and they would just flop down and take these interesting poses. And she had a collection of Indian saris Mm. that uh, that she had collected on her trip to India and so forth. And she would just drape them around very casually, and, and these young people would just flop down on them. Huh. Well, that's not the way art school students posed before. Right. It had nothing to do with classical French, you know. Contraposto um, or any of that you know, stuff. The correct way of drawing the model and right. all that. It had nothing to do with historic poses, hmm. which most art school mo- models then took. I guess they still do. And the idea of a model that's lying there in this twisted, crazy, relaxed pose, unexpected, was a revelation hmm. to me at any rate. Hmm. Hmm. And they fitted in with my scheme. Abstract. All the shapes they were getting into. Oh, just as a, as a shape to use in a design. Hmm. That's, so, that's so interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's really Ma- insightful. Ma- Matisse was the basis of using shapes. How to use shapes. And that one phase of his work. Uh, what did it feel like when your paintings started to, your figure paintings really started to catch on? Well, it was overnight. First of all, some of my old friends like Jack Tvorkoff or, uh, and uh, oh, several, I wouldn't, wouldn't speak to me. Oh really? The old, the older artist, the only one who seemed to have any, was to remain friendly, <laughs> was De Kooning, hmm. and uh, but some of the writers saw it as a revolutionary move on my part, even though it was uh, most most. Of, you know, in a sense, it was going back against the radical new developments. But you weren't purposely never, pushing against anything, right? I wasn't pushing against it. Abstract expressionism was already dead mm. when I started uh, to, to show the paintings. But it was, just, I guess, on top of that, looked, looked on as a uh, betrayal going back. Oh, I see. And uh, so I earned as much. Uh, I became well known, let's say, because I did it. It was seen as a radical move. Clement Greenberg, who had been very friendly and had written a nice letter for me for the Fulbright when I applied, and probably why I got the Fulbright, uh, wouldn't speak to me. For, he was the big champion of Jackson Pollock and these people, yeah. Clement Greenberg. So uh, in the academic world, I became uh, an important figure, and I started getting invited out to give talks at all these different colleges. Mm. I went to every major university across the country giving talks, mm. even Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a a very busy career for the next 15 years or so. Mm. And I published articles, making them as pushy as I could. <laughs> and uh, did, did you see yourself as leading any sort of new movement or? No, but a movement grew very rapidly. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the only one who would become involved with a kind of realism. Mm. There were various kinds of realism. All about the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was Leonard Anderson. Mm-hmm. He was very uh, oh, studied Poussin very closely. Uh, did classical type subject matters. Paul Georges was already painting the figure, and he thought I had moved in on his. <laughs> <laughs> territory but he was doing it very expressionistically and belligerently and uh, Alice Neal right had been doing it in her own way and that that would have been when you guys became friendly when you were no 
Alice never accepted me as a friend. Oh, is that right? But she became friends with my wife. Oh. They became very good friends. <laughs> my wife became a print publisher even and published oh, Alice so Neal. She published mostly women <clears throat> artists. And uh, I ended up driving out, being her driver. <laughs> I was driver everywhere. I had to with the same Volkswagen bus. <laughs> <laughs> she used to sit up front she just used you then yeah giving me a hard time every inch of the way <laughs> all over the city to different kinds of meetings there was a, a a group of students out of the New York studio school that started a discussion group that was terrific hmm. uh, it met every Friday night at the Educational Alliance, they found anybody who was interested in figurative art. They called it the Alliance of Figurative Art. The Alliance. Yeah, I want to write that. And it met for about 15 years after they started it, every Friday night. And everybody who was anybody showing artwork. <laughs> that was figure would show up the, at the first meeting the first few meetings there were three about 300 people wow week after week wow. and you know somebody had to put up the folding chairs <laughs> <laughs> but the meetings were extraordinary they were organized by a sculptor named Richard Miller okay it took over gave them a form there would be a panel organized and discussed and then a big fight big verbal battle <laughs> but all kinds of artists including alice neal learned to speak there hmm. publicly hmm. she never gave public talks before that wow never talked about her art and uh but she was not the only one paul george's became very vocal and belligerent, a whole <laughs> group of artists. And were you speaking there as well? As well. I was the opposition. <laughs> there was a group of, <laughs> uh, one of the other artists, Paul Resica, who'd been in Italy, living in Italy, moved back to New York and started coming to the meetings. He More, wrote a good bit, right? Didn't he write as well? Oh, we all wrote. Yeah. That's <laughs> or recorded or something. A lot of writing came out of that. And uh, uh, at any rate, it was a lot of, a lot of belligerence, too. Uh, you were not supposed to work from photographs, for instance. Mm. That was a no-no. But they... After, uh, oh, what's her name? Oh, we were so close friends. Uh, Chuck Close. Chuck Close, yes. The word close gave it. <laughs> Chuck Close. They invited him to speak. I knew it was going to be a disaster. <laughs> and it was. Why? They let him speak. This was after it was organized for about three or four years, they invited him to speak. They let him speak. He gave it a good talk about himself and his approach. 
And when he asked for questions, they threw beer bottles at him. Not all of them empty. This oh, was before God. my gosh. He became a cripple. He was still an upright, right. strong-looking young man. <laughs> yeah. They showered him with beer cans and beer bottles. For, for working from photography? Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Uh, also, uh, another friend of mine made the mistake of inviting him to give a talk. He had organized a show of the uh, 19th century, the other side of modern uh, French painting. The, uh, what do you call it? Like French academic? French academic school. He organized a show uh, with some, some French art historian. It was at the Guggenheim. Okay. Mm -hmm. The other side of French art, something like that. So I suggested, unfortunately suggested, he come and give a talk, Robert Rosenblum. So he came and gave a talk while the show was up. And then at the end of the talk, he got showered with questions, starting with, why didn't you show our our work instead of the French? <laughs> <laughs> and then that was the least of it. And then the next, before you know, two minutes had passed. You know, why show all that fag art in <laughs> your fag, meaning Robert Rosenblum, uh, which at that moment I guess he was, and. Uh, it was so embarrassing. It just ascended into that kind of insult. But that a, passion. It was a rough crowd to speak to. Yeah, I, I, you know, it might have been hostile at times, but I'm, I'm jealous of hostile. a crowd of 300 painters fiercely debating yeah. something. It yeah. doesn't seem like and that Paul, happens Paul George anymore. has became Sounds very amazing. vocal and the leader of all group of young artists. The thing is, a lot of people were teaching then, mm. and their students would come and get involved as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but it came out of the New York Studio School. Mm. Did you feel like a lot of the conversations that were being had, um, did people kind of lean into what they were doing more after having these big debates? Not everybody, there was no money involved. Nobody was selling what they did. Mm. The art market was uh, zilch. Even for people like the Kooning, they were getting very small. Mm. At a certain point, uh, I remember the Kooning, and at the, I was a member of a co-op group in the 50s, the Tanager Gallery. And the Kooning studio was right upstairs, and he used to spend a lot of time. And he, uh, a Jackson Pollock was bought for $30,000. Mm. And everybody was shocked by the Metropolitan, I think the Metropolitan Museum. Mm. It was unheard of that such a huge sum should be paid for the artwork of somebody they knew. Mm -hmm. I think Pollock had just died or something. Mm. It was that 
right about that time. And I remember one day when de Kooning came in boasting about he had bought back a painting from his dentist <laughs> that he had used to pay a dental bill <laughs> instead of money. He had given the dentist the painting. He had bought it back for 2500 and had just sold it for 5000 Ah. Uh, <laughs> that was an enormous sum. Mm-hmm. Even though money was different, the inflation made a big... Uh, but, you know, I was working most of the time for like a dollar fifty an hour, so that was a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, so values were quite different. But nobody was really selling their art other than people like Sikuri. <laughs> Jack and Pollock had just, all those older artists, George. Uh, this question may be. We're, we're selling their work, you know, 5,000 was a big amount, 8,000 at the most. This might be difficult to answer or impossible, but uh, in preparing for the interview, um, and I don't want to like uh, gush too much, but you're one of my favorite painters ever. Oh. I remember the first time I saw one of your paintings in life, actually, and I've just always really admired your work. And then in preparing for this interview, we started uh, just I was asking random people what they think of your work and showing them images of your work. And it seems fairly universally loved what you do. What would you attribute that to as a figure painter? Why do you well, think so I'm many people... I'm less aware of that than the, than the people against. <laughs> <laughs> oh. No, I'm, I'm serious. Like It seems like almost everyone we... Sh we Sophie and I have shown to me on my own... Mm -hmm. Just like, hey, I'm about to interview this guy. What do you think of this? And show them an image off my cell phone. And they're like, generally, they love it. I've always felt somewhat embattled at war, at war with whatever was going on. You do? Yeah. Like, do you feel like you're rebelling against the... No, not rebelling. Uh Well, dur during the war, of course, the fighting in Italy, it was amazing. Uh, I never got into an actual battle, by the way. I was always the replacement. Mm. But the replacements were right, you were kept right nearby. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a, tr a short truck drive away. But whenever it's a town or even a city was taken. The British were always there, the British Army. The British had a group of art historians with them hmm. as part of the army. Oh, that's, that's Whenever wild. they took over, it's in, uh, whenever the Germans were pushed out, these British art historians, soldiers, I guess, in the army, moved in and would organize the paintings that had been put away for in caves and so forth, 
from mm. the local mm. churches to hide them from from the Nazis essentially to hide yeah, the paintings to keep yeah it from the Germans and uh, and they usually were in caves <laughs> where the wine was I also I guess way back it's a great cave <laughs> yeah, so the Germans could get the wine but didn't bother with the cave with the going further back Anyway, they would put on an art show in the local church or town hall or whatever hmm. and write pamphlets in English, little paper pamphlets that gave you all the information they could dig up about the work. And that's how I got interested in art history. Hmm. I still have some of those pamphlets. Oh, do you really? Yeah. But they did that all the way through, uh, well around Naples and then up through, well, towards Pisa. Pisa and then up, up towards Milan later. They organized shows everywhere. It was amazing, with pamphlets. Hmm. And it was, uh, Somehow, within the, the week after the fighting ended, I ended up in Venice. How? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but there I was in Venice. And uh, Berenson, I guess, uh, organized all the artwork that had been put away in hiding around Venice into a big show that ran all the way around San Marco Plaza. It was an endless exhibition of all the artwork that had been taken from the various churches and, wow. and put in this one place. Wow. It was, a, it was fantastic. Wow. I was with this other guy, soldier, and uh, he went with me. He wasn't at all interested, but he went with me <laughs> to see this show. And uh, Berenson was lecturing a, a, a group of, I don't know who they were, young people. And we stayed with the, the group for a little while and then took off to see the rest of the show. But it was a fantastic experience. Hmm. And then we went to all the churches hmm. for the mosaics. And, uh, so for me, the war became basic art, art history education. Hmm. And... Uh, and I got stuck with it. I realized later the difference between Andy Warhol and me, that he had no interest in any of that stuff. Really? Or very little. Hmm. No knowledge of it. Hmm. And I was burdened with it. <laughs> <laughs> so Ladislaw Fitzer, at the end of this first job, he and Buckminster Fuller, which I tried to tell you, the story ended up, ends up with 
certainly would say, you should go study art history. He had time left on the GI Bill. He was teaching at Pratt. He said, most American art students are badly educated in the humanities. Hmm. He said, go study art history. I had two years left on the GI Bill. So he said, uh, and you can work with me around your studies. So it changed my life. I applied to the Institute of Fine Arts, NYU, and uh, they took a group of us in just for the money, the tuition, <laughs> the GI Bill. Hmm. I mean, I had a good record of grades, but it was all for studio work, not for hmm. study. Philip, one, one of the reasons that I was really excited to interview t you today was because you've been painting for over 70 years, which means you have a lot of experience making images. And I'm only 28. <laughs> I haven't painted very many images in my life, but I wanted to ask you about what it means to trust your intuition. Uh, it's everything. You do what you want to do out of your own interest and you stick with it no matter what anybody says. <laughs> uh, hmm. When I started to teach at Pratt, the first meeting for the faculty they had, the guy who was the head of the school said, don't bother teaching perspective, nobody's using it anymore. And the only way they taught the figure it was in terms of scribbling, gesture, mm. drawing. Mm. And they said, don't bother teaching the figure as a, as a figure. <laughs> it was gesture, all about gesture. Uh, and no perspective. Okay, so the first thing I did was give students problems and perspective. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and began we be, we, well they hired models but mostly for those gesture drawings but I had the model stand still hmm. while they drew the outline hmm. carefully hmm. and uh, a couple of the other faculty members picked up on it hmm. in, the, in that first year Part. And before we knew it, we had this. We were accused of trying to start a movement <laughs> by the other faculty. <laughs> there were about four of us. And, and the woman who was a graduate student who was assisting me in my class got, she was an abstract painter and she got caught up in the problems and did wonderful solutions. Mm and became a, a major painter, a figurative art in her own way hmm. uh, within the next few years. Martha Erlbacher. Oh, she started at the, she's taught at the New York Academy. Right. Uh, so right. she was one of your students then? She was a graduate student who was with me in my class while I was developing all these ideas. Really? Oh, that's great. I don't know how I was, I, 
I was popping with ideas at that moment. Hmm. I, you know, combining what I picked up from Suthner with art history and all that. So would you say you've been fairly uncompromising with painting things that you want to paint throughout well, your career? Early on, I realized painting is a visual experience. And Frank Stella came up with the, the idea, you know, what you see is what you get. <laughs> well, I took it literally. I did it literally. I had the idea before Frank Stella without being able to verbalize it that painting is a visual experience. And, uh, and art in general is all that's left from all these ancient civilizations mm. that preceded us from cave on art of cave art on down to these various civilizations is all all that's left is the art and mm. then later the literature as well yeah i've heard a so saying it's, it's basic to the human experience mm. And it doesn't have to do anything more than be itself. <laughs> itself it's being an expression. Of, I mean, a lot of it was done for teaching purposes or religious purposes, which I knew nothing about. I just liked looking at it. Hmm. I didn't know what all those Renaissance paintings met, uh, meant when I saw them during the war. Hmm. I got that information, what the flowers meant, the different flowers and the Botticelli's meant and so right. forth, uh, through studying art history later. But before, I just liked them as shapes and colors. And that's the important thing. Hmm. And, and what I really resented about going to the Institute of Fine Arts was they didn't talk about how the painting was made, put together. And for me, that was really the important thing. That's what I wanted to know. How did Masaccio do his drawing? How did uh, Priolo della Francesca use perspective invented by Alberti? Hmm. That they don't go into. The art historians don't bother with that. Well, that's a question I've had a little bit uh, thinking about your work. How how are you creating those images? Do you start with a drawing and pencil? Do you fill it in? Yeah. Do you, how long do they take you? They take a long time. <laughs> They're expensive. It's expensive to pay the models <laughs> That's right. because they have to give them what the art schools uh -huh. pay. Uh, but I decided to not get involved in the concept of any particular concept, but just to do, well, as I said, the explosion taught me that my eyes were the important thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Use my eyes. And so it's all from, it's been all from vision. How do you and know when one of your paintings... Once I left the abstract expressions thing. How do you know when one of your paintings is done? 
What? How do you know when one of your paintings is finished, it's completed? Well, that's what I picked up from the abstract expressionists. Most of them, by the way, the younger group, were war veterans. Mm. And they'd gone through art school on the GI Bill. Mm. And uh, I decided finally the abstract expressionism really served the purpose of how school teachers were using it in kindergarten and so forth as a way of expressing themselves to get rid of... A lot of them had horrendous experiences during the war. Mm, yeah. And uh, it was a way of working through all that, the psychological... Remnants. Like therapy, almost like therapy, to, to help yeah. with the PTSD. Artist therapy was abstract expression, is the basis of it. Hmm. And uh, people like de Kooning, this has not, no takeaway, nothing to take away from them, but they couldn't work without getting loaded with alcohol. Mm. They only painted late at night. Uh, after heavy drinking. Hmm. I know Bacon was like that a little too. Well, that's later. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. And, and that was, so you you have a feeling from the war, like that sort of. Yeah. Hmm. hmm. And uh, I learned not to drink during the war <laughs> in Italy. Hmm. I had a couple of terrible experiences. And I hated what it did to my friends. Hmm. Getting drunk was what we did. They did on the weekends, and I went off to look at the local art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw. I heard a quote of you once said, uh, "You ignore meaning in your work because there's no way to control meaning." What other people see in the work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what people see in it. Yeah. So I don't care about the meaning. I just care about what I see. Hmm. So great. And since I spent most of my life in art schools, working with the models has become an ordinary everyday ex experience in my life. Do you feel like you're trying to capture the mystery of what you're seeing? No, there's no mystery. Hmm. It's hmm. just there. Hmm. So you're recording. Whatever it implies is other whoever's looking at it reads it differently hmm. in their own terms, and uh, they wouldn't coincide with my terms anyway. Hmm. Even my family members. <laughs> Do you feel like you're creating any kind of symbolism at all in the paintings? No. If anything, it's just about what people look like, hmm. Americans. The army using the body or being interested in using the body. It was fascinating. I was fascinated in the army by what it did to our bodies. At the end of the basic training, which I took three times, uh, the third time in Italy, take a bunch of flabby guys and... They come out 
like football players, hmm. basketball players. It was amazing. Hmm. So I became, that's all I think about the body. Hmm. Not sexually, but physically, what it can do. What do you what do you think about paint? Like putting paint on a canvas. What does that mean to you? Uh, well, basically, it's uh, duplicating vision. Duplicating vision. Hmm. A means of duplicating vision. Hmm. I, I never. I use for. I've taken many many photographs. I've always loved that, but. I've never worked whenever once or twice I've done a couple portraits from photographs when the people are dead or unavailable and somebody needs the portrait for some reason or other. Uh, but to me, copying a photograph is like going to work. <laughs> doing a job. Trying to duplicate what I see is a real chore, and you can't do it. It keeps changing. Hmm. Mm hmm. Hmm. And so the final painting is an accumulation of moments of intense observation. From life. From life and trying to duplicate it. Hmm. So it's never like life. You know? It's never, yes. There's no way of really doing it. <laughs> um, do you okay this one's about freedom like what freedom what does freedom mean to you in your paintings freedom yeah uh, and how's that changed over the years I, I think I've been I've always felt I've been very fortunate to live in a society that allowed me to do what I wanted to do hmm or have a way of supporting what I wanted to do that I could do to support myself. I've never depended on sales of the artwork for, or for my family. My wife and I have three children who are now in their 60s, who <laughs> uh, uh, are quite independent. But that's the way I grew up. Nobody took care of me. On, except the army, and I, uh, my parents were broke, poor, not well-educated, hmm. and uh, from very large families. <laughs> uh, but I moved away. Moving to New York was a radical move. I guess it is for all these, most New Yorkers, come from other places, the ones in the arts, anyway. They want to be here. Yeah. They're ref refugees from hometown. It's amazing to me what you've built through doing what you love, through painting the way you like to paint. You've raised a family. You've got a beautiful place with all your artifacts and collectibles. It's really well, the impressive. The artifacts, by the way, or what I could get of the history of the art of the human race <laughs> <laughs> that I could afford to pick up, pay for it to get. Paid. 
So it's a there's stuff that from uh, prehistoric to uh, through Egypt to the pre-Columbian stuff, which coincides with Egypt, by the way, and. Uh, I think things like that are fascinating. Mm -hmm. That what happened in Mexico and Guatemala, it's you know, it happened at the same time in Egypt. No, no connection. It's just what people did, mm -hmm. uh, and they both produced great things. Mm -hmm. I remember what we consider great now. So you you are, for your painting, like in the history books, I have one of your big books mm -hmm. that, on my shelf right now. Um, what what do you want people to say about your your work? Unfortunately, they've said it. <laughs> <laughs> I've written about a lot, which I always read with interest as if it's about another person. <laughs> oh, really? I don't take it personally. Hmm. Well, but what what makes you hat like? Do you feel like you're understood or misunderstood? I don't care. You don't care. I don't care. I'm happy to be allowed to have been allowed to do it. Hmm. And the materials were there, and the civilization that made the materials available. Electric lights, you know, have added to my paintings. Mm. Painting in daylight is quite different than painting in artificial light. And I had jobs during the day. <laughs> so I learned to paint at night. And Under to artificial. Artificial light as part of the painting. Shadows. I noticed because a lot of you, you have that kind of tri shadow effect on a lot of things, you know, multiple light. lights. Street lights mm -hmm. <laughs> from 10th Street. <laughs> we have one or two bonus questions for you. Okay. <laughs> um, in your opinion, um, what makes a great painting? Well, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> As I once said in a lecture at Pratt, <laughs> when I had to give survey course uh, in Italian art at a certain period. There are a couple thousand paintings of the Madonna and child that were done, but maybe half a dozen were terrific. Mm. What makes them stand out? Mm. Why makes the others, what makes the others second rate? That's a good question I can't answer. Hmm. But it's true. You just see it, you know it when you see it. Botticelli uh, is one thing and 200 others are another. Piero <laughs> <laughs> del Francesca is great and the people around them are less. Hmm. And intangible. It's, a, it's there. Uh, it's beyond definition in words. Hmm. Hmm. 
and it has to do with visual experience. Oh, almost purely. And I think art historians are missing the boat by concentrating on the meaning. I think a lot of contemporary criticism is based on meaning and not looking. And a lot of contemporary art, unfortunately, is coming straight out of Disney. The Disney iconography. Yeah, it really and is. Stylistically. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't find it thrilling. Mm. But some of it is well, beautifully designed. Hmm. I respond to that, to a lot of contemporary art. They know, they know design, they know graphic art. Graphic art, I think, right now leads, and I think that's the result of television. Uh, and and the Disney Studios. Hmm. Um, so you had um, all these many years of painting. What what is one thing that painting has given you that's been a surprise, and maybe one thing that it's taken away from you? Nothing that can be taken seriously. Really, what I do is taken seriously. That's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I own an awful lot of my own work, but let me say that. <laughs> so it's not been a matter of uh, uh, the market. Hmm. Hmm. If there was one thing that you could tell my generation of figurative painters, what would it be? Well, you paint to please yourself primarily, not to fit in the, with your idea of what will get you something in return. Uh, that, I mean, what goes on in the galleries has a lot to do with being fashionable, mm -hmm. uh, fashion. But you can't become fashionable. It happens to some and not to others who work just as hard mm. and have as much or more talent. I've known so many artists, I mean, beyond students, uh, some extraordinary talents have just gone down the drain because because of the market. Hmm. That doesn't take away from the value of what they produced, but the value but what they produced simply gets lost. You don't see it. What you see is what has become fashionable. Hmm. And I, I find that very disturbing. Hmm. And um, on 10th Street, when we had our own gallery, we were able to find a lot of artists to show that were extraordinary. They've disappeared. Because hmm. they didn't, for one reason or other, become fashionable. Leo Castelli wasn't interested in them. Hmm. Yeah, he's a big force. 
And he depended on advisors. The advisors are not interested in art as such, only in what is fashionable. It has nothing to do with somebody making the art can control. It happens or by accident or it doesn't happen. Hmm. But I think it's an accidental thing. And uh, I wish... Uh, I've never felt, I've been proud of Andy, <laughs> by the way. Uh, the fact that he's, uh, his reputation goes on and on year after year, but he's been dead almost, what, 30 years? Hmm. It's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. uh, I take a little bit of pride in having had something to do with him. <laughs> but uh, you can't plan on it. You can't work towards that. It happens or it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that's not good advice. There's <laughs> <laughs> nothing you can do anything about. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I think it's good. I think it's sobering. Yeah. Yeah. You're on your own. <laughs> and you we, work for yourself primarily. We all three are very uh, dedicated painters, the mm -hmm. three of us, figurative painters. And um, I'm, I'm embarking on a new series. And do you have any advice for that in, in how to think about going about a new body of paintings? Well, first of all, you have to de decide on what size they're going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Practical. <laughs> so you can order, good, use good stretchers and good materials. Good materials. If you're doing paintings. A lot of paintings fall apart. A lot of paintings also get lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know at least uh, about three dozen of my works that literally cannot be traced. Really? We tried to borrow some for a retrospective show, so the family knows nothing about it. <laughs> uh, if they get, the person who bought it is now dead. <laughs> no idea. Uh, works on paper hmm. tend to get lost. But keep a photographic record. Good photographs. Good photos. <laughs> Good lighting. <laughs> if you can afford a professional photographer, it's even better. Oh. How many paintings have you done? Do you have a, a well, loose I'll tell number? you what. We've built a website in the last few years. Uh, I had to make a decision about whether to have a real book catalog published or because uh, I studied art history and I recognized the value of a catalog resume and all that. But at this time, 
I thought very few people actually bother with books. So we've done a website. Mm. So everything I've, all my drawings, all the watercolors, all the prints, I got involved in printmaking out of a fascination with these different techniques, hmm. not as something to sell cheap. You know, they're not, they're not cheap versions of my own works. But I truly was interested in how You know, lithograph, etching, aquatint etching, sugar lift, all that uh, engraving. I've tried to do everything just mm. to find out what it's like, mm. the mechanics. I'm mm. interested in the mechanics. Mm. Not, a, not, as I said, not in what it means. I don't yeah. care what it means. <laughs> I really don't. Are there parts of a painting that are more exciting to you than others, say, painting a fabric or painting a knee? Are there anything you, you prefer uh, to paint? Equal. Equal. Mm -hmm. I spent probably more time painting the bench and the rug and the line hmm. than painting the two figures, hmm. or at least an equal amount of time. And I wanted to be as true to the bamboo in the chair as I was to the guy's foot or hand. Mm -hmm. The hand is bigger, by the way, because if you work from life, that's what happens. Mm. What's closer, I work close, as close to the models as I can get. Mm -hmm. I'm not in a classroom <laughs> with a distance. <laughs> I'm right on top of them. What's close to you is bigger. Yeah. Period. Uh, and so I'm not working with an academic scheme. Right. Of an idea of how the figure is put together, but I'm working from vision. Mm -hmm. So if the hand is close to me, it's bigger hmm. than the head, which is with the guy lying down. The head is much further back. Um, well, we shouldn't take up too much more of your time. Philip, this was amazing. Oh, thank thank, you, thank so you so much for talking with us. What does it get boiled down to? Usually about an hour. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. So I hope you guys enjoyed this interview, and I wanted to leave you with a few of my thoughts. So one thing that kind of came to me as I was editing this was that art history is the story of human consciousness recording itself. And that is something that has quite a gravity to it. Um, a story of humanity etched into the fabric of reality with these things that people make, you know, and that in, in some way it's a fundamental way to how he approaches making and seeing objects. He even said it himself that the biggest difference between him and Andy Warhol was that Andy didn't have a reverence for art history. And if you think about it, their identities as Americans were fashioned in completely different ways. Pearlstein fought in a war for freedom and justice, and Andy enjoyed those freedoms and cultivated the capitalist culture. I mean, can you imagine the first time that you saw real art? Like, let's say you saw the Raft of the Medusa, which we all know is in the Louvre, and the first time that you saw that huge, incredible fucking painting that's made people weep, it was being brought out 
of like a cave, like a bunker after a war that you fought in. <laughs> and it's being leaned up against buildings, just like on the street with a bunch of other art historical paintings. Like soldiers are putting a public show up on the city sidewalk to celebrate its survival from the Nazis. Like, of course it's gonna impact you. Can you imagine seeing a painting for the first time in that context? Like, it just blows my mind. Humanity can't help itself but to create as it grapples with its own existence. And to recognize the beauty is to be a part of it. Like, even Ben Morea, when we had him on the show, I mean, he talked about animism and, like, creating, like, that it was part, like, like breathing. Like, of course you have to make. It's part of being alive. It's part of the human spirit. Like, I think that this story kind of talks about that. That revelation. Anyway. Uh, he was really inspiring, and editing this has been quite an experience. Just listening back to the stories over and over again, it, they, they really have so much meaning. Like, there's a reason that he chose those particular stories to tell us, you know? He's a wise man, Philip. Thank you, Philip. I just wanted to let you know that we have a phone number now. We have a voicemail, official Art Grind voicemail, where you can call us and tell us how you're feeling and what you're making during your stay in the bunker. So tell us what's on your mind, and we'll play it at the end of the next episode. It's 929-267-4830. Again, that's 929-267-4830. All right, go paint something. Hi, my name is Angelica, and I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, I am one of those lucky ones that having the pandemic has been... Um, actually more fortunate before the pandemic hit i would spend almost two hours a day commuting back and forth to work but since i was forced to work from home i have extra two hours of my life daily to focus more on my art um and i'm very um lucky in that aspect because my brother did pass away this past june during the pandemic and me being a high risk um, person, I wasn't able to attend his funeral. So I had a lot of trouble with the grieving process. Um, art has actually saved my life or made the grieving process better because sometimes when I'm stuck in my thoughts through the grieving process, what I would do is I would just make art. I do mixed media art, um, drawing, painting, um, charcoal, graphite, ink. <laughs> watercolor, oil paint, acrylic. Um, it just doesn't matter. I'm all over the place. So um, so I wanted to bring in a little bit of a different perspective because if it wasn't for art, I don't know where I would be. My house would probably be torn apart right now. Instead, there's a bunch of drawings and um, canvases all over the place of me getting that grieving process out by expressing myself creatively. Um, also, I think you guys are great. I'm glad that you were able to come back and do um, your podcast. I like the just kind of shoot the shit podcast that you just last had. So um, keep it going. Um, I hope things do get better for you. I'm very claustrophobic, so me being in big cities, um, 
especially like Marshall, I would, I don't know how you guys can handle that, but um, um, you also be safe out, well, out there. Thank you. Bye.